How concerned are you when you receive a notification that says something like this? We have updated our terms of agreement. Please click the link below to view our updated policies. Uh, if you are like me, most likely, uh, these are of little to no importance to you. Uh, you may just immediately archive. I sometimes, what company is this? Scroll to the very bottom, unsubscribe immediately. Uh, but you can imagine that the more important the thing that you subscribe to, uh, the more weight that kind of message might hold. Uh, so for a social media platform updating its terms and service, you might be mildly curious about what kind of security is at stake. Uh, but by and large, you may not be all that concerned. And so you discard the email quickly. But if it had to do with something more significant, uh, a recent legal proceeding, for example, uh, perhaps an issue with your bank account, uh, then my guess is you would pay a little bit more attention to it. Well, what if you receive notification that your inheritance in heaven, your salvation, the terms of which have been changed or added to, uh, this is, in fact, what the churches in Galatia were effectively dealing with when Jews would come along and tell them that they had to become circumcised in order to be considered part of the family of God. Uh, they learned that they weren't just saved by grace through faith, but by grace through faith plus adherence to the law. And for this reason, Paul writes the book that we're studying this morning. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. Galatians 3, verses 15 through 20. Uh, and if you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chairs, you can find today's sermon passage on page 973, uh, 973. Uh, and I often say this, but if you don't have your own personal copy of God's Word to read, uh, feel free to just take one of the ones underneath the Bibles, uh, underneath the chairs, as our gift to you. We would love for you to have your own copy of God's Word, because we believe that He has spoken to us uh, by it, that He has inspired its authors through the Holy Spirit, and in everything that He intends to communicate, it is without error. Uh, so we would love for you to have your own personal copy. Uh, feel free to take one uh, from us. Uh, this book, the book of Galatians, is a letter that was written to churches in a Roman province called Galatia. Uh, they're churches that Paul himself likely would have uh, evangelized, planted on his missionary journeys. Uh, therefore, he has a special interest in watching over them and knowing how they're doing spiritually. And so the occasion for this letter, as I've mentioned already, was this disturbing news that Galatian churches were being misled by what Paul says are false brothers. Uh, Paul calls them Judaizers, uh, telling non-Jewish Christians that they needed to follow Mosaic law. Well, Paul uh, appears to respond swiftly and strongly. It's one of his most strongly worded letters. Uh, in chapter 1, he defends the message that he originally preached to them, the gospel of grace through faith alone. And in doing so, he defends his own calling from God as an apostle, saying he received this message directly from God himself. In chapter 2, Paul tells the Galatians uh, that his message or ministry had not been influenced by any men, not even the influential apostles in Jerusalem who he had visited. In fact, uh, they endorsed his ministry and encouraged him in it. 
Not only that, but there was an instance in which Paul uh, corrected the Apostle Peter as a brother in Christ. Well, now, halfway into chapter 3, we land in the middle of Paul's argument for salvation or the blessing of Abraham, the inheritance of promise, as it's referred to, that it does not come through the law, but rather through faith. Uh, This morning's passage continues that conversation. He had just made the point that those who rely on the law are under a curse that only Christ can redeem us from. Well, in verses 15 through 20, he's going to provide an example to show us why salvation is not found in the law. Let's read our passage together now. Galatians 3, verses 15 through 20. Paul says this, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it, is, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Well, each week I like to provide a kind of summary statement, just summarizing the main point Uh, of this passage, and this week I would summarize it like this. The law was never for our salvation. For that, we must believe in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. Uh, The law was never for our salvation. For that, we must believe in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. Uh, The structure of these verses, I think, is fairly clear. Uh, Paul provides a modern-day example at least modern for him, nearly 2,000 years ago, uh, but I think applicable to us in verses 15 through 18. And he's proving the point that the promise to Abraham is superior to the law. And then in verses 19 and 20, he raises a rhetorical question, effectively answering an objection. What purpose then is the law? The logical objection, then the law must uh, have no purpose at all if the promise of Abraham is superior. So then he explains briefly the reasons for the law as a kind of temporary placeholder until the Messiah arrived. I think the easiest way to understand these verses is just to follow that structural breakdown. Uh, So I have one point for each paragraph this morning. So point one, verses 15 through 18. Promise is primary. Promise is primary. Uh, The first verses here, 15 through 18, they come off the heel of Paul explaining that no one is justified by the law. In the passage just above ours, uh, Paul was making the point that we're all under a curse which Christ has redeemed us from. Uh, Those who still rely on the law are not free, but still remain under the curse, therefore. But, he says, all things, all these things to remind the Galatians Uh, that they have been redeemed by Christ. 
They have been ransomed. Uh, They have been freed from the curse. And they know this because they've already received the blessing of Abraham, the Holy Spirit, which they experienced upon their conversion uh, when Paul preached Christ crucified to them. Paul said earlier in the book uh, that Christ crucified was publicly portrayed to them uh, before their eyes in his preaching. That's how Paul summarized uh, his teaching to them, making Christ's crucifixion publicly portrayed with his words. I wonder if we think about sharing the gospel that way, like a billboard of Christ's crucifixion to those who we speak to about it. Well, in all these points, the main thing he's saying is that because of Christ, it's no longer required to follow the law. Uh, Going back to the law would be like returning to prison after being fairly released for serving a sentence. Uh, It's to go back to a lesser form of revelation because God has revealed himself now fully in the person of his son, Jesus. And you might remember the emphasis Paul has placed on grace grace uh, on this point. The good news of the gospel is that it is a message of grace, salvation by grace through faith. And so Paul says that to return to the law is to remove that grace that frees us from it. In chapter 2, 21, Paul even says that the grace of God is nullified and Christ's death is meaningless if we can attain our own righteousness, our own salvation by works of the law. Well, in this text, uh, it's pretty similar. Paul's describing why the Mosaic Law, uh, which is the law given on Mount Sinai to Israel, the first five books of the Old Testament, Uh, Paul's explaining why the Mosaic Law is inferior to the promises made to Abraham. He's saying that the law is not the same as the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant uh, is inferior. The introduction of the law in history does not change or add requirements to the need for faith in God's promises. And before we even get to his argument, uh, I just want you to notice the tone in Paul's writing seems to change in these verses. Despite all the strong words he said up to this point, he calls the Galatians brothers. He calls them brothers in verse 15. He hasn't used that term since chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, But lest we think Paul is just an angry apostle who doesn't care about those he's correcting, he lovingly instructs these Christians uh, like an older brother. Unlike the Judaizers, whom he calls false brothers, Paul demonstrates his loving concern for these young Christians uh, as he pleads with them over the truth. Uh, I think, again, a helpful model for us for how we're to exhort and encourage one another uh, and even at times correct one another in love. Paul offers a human example uh, to make his point about a promise being primary in verse 15. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Uh, Now, I don't know really outside of Christian circles uh, who uses the word covenant regularly, Uh, but we, we do know contracts pretty well. We know testaments or wills. Uh, that one leaves behind when uh, they die so that family members know how to disperse uh, their wealth or to pay off their debts, uh, whatever it may be. And that's actually the same word, really, uh, testament or will. Uh, and you can see how in, even in our day, if someone were to 
to pass away. And under no circumstance can someone just add to the will or change it. You can't just write yourself in there if you're not included uh, by the person. And Paul is saying that that's a little bit like the Mosaic law is in relation to the promises made to Abraham. They don't change the terms of blessing. It's not as though once the law came into the picture, you were no longer made righteous by faith. Israel is supposed to follow the law in faith, and that's where they failed. By bringing up this example, though, Paul is saying that the Abrahamic covenant is superior to the Mosaic covenant. Uh, The answer to God's promises were never to be fulfilled in the law. And the existence of it does not cancel out the promises of Abraham. In other words, these Judaizers were telling Galatian Christians that their faith was not enough for them to be declared righteous. They were telling them that they had to be circumcised, ergo, rely on the works of the law. One of the challenging things about the book of Galatians uh, for us is all of this law talk. Uh, Because for us who are not Jewish, it's just simply not a part of our culture or our history, our ethnicity or our family traditions. It can be hard to relate to a little bit. Uh, But I want you to see that the principle applies to anyone who simply relies on their own good deeds or their own works. And this, I think, is something that a lot of us do, Uh, sometimes even without knowing it. Paul's not just speaking against uh, Jews, but against legalism. Because that's where trusting in our own works gets us. When we rely so much on our good deeds, or we demand them from others to the point of saying, you must do these things to become a Christian, you have fallen into legalism. You have said that you're not saved by grace, which is not of your works, but you are saved by what you do. This can take many different forms. And it can inevitably creep into our thinking. Uh, Here are just some mild forms of legalism, I think, that uh, at least I have certainly been tempted to think many times. I'll never be saved because I'm not good enough. I'll never be saved because I can't maintain a streak of good deeds. My growth as a Christian is a result of my hard work. You think someone else will never be saved because of their bad deeds. You think you're better than others because you perform more good deeds. Christ is just our example. We should live like he did and care for others instead of worrying about all this kind of religious dogma like splitting hairs over what you believe. That's not important. It's just about how you live and what you do. You think God's opinion of you is based on how you live. Do you see what all of these things have in common? They all overemphasize our works. They all remove the grace of God from the equation. They ascribe far too much credit to ourselves when it comes to our salvation. They all go against what the Bible teaches about God's love, about His choosing us before the foundations of the world before we're even formed, knitted together in the womb. His electing love of us does not depend on our good works, friends. And we should give him praise that it's not, because if it were, we would all get what we deserve. 
which is his good and just punishment for our sins. Now, for the Christian, works is not something we do to gain God's favor. It's something we do because of the grace he's shown us out of love for the one who saved us. Here's the point. The Mosaic law had conditions. Israel was required to obey it. But when God promised Abraham an inheritance through his offspring, it was not based on Abraham's works or obedience. It was based only on the power and the will of God to deliver on his promises. When Abraham believed, showing faith in these promises, then it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Paul says in these verses that the law doesn't cancel out the faith required for righteousness. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul is telling the Galatians, don't listen to these false brothers requiring law observance. Why would you have to rely on the law when it was given 430 years after the promise made to Abraham? The inheritance that you received, you received apart from the law. And so there's no need for it. Uh, To rely on your works is to void the promises of God, just like to rely on works is to make Christ's death meaningless. A few weeks ago, we read Genesis 15 as part of our scripture reading, which is where you can read about this covenant that God makes with Abraham. He promises multiple things to him throughout Genesis, but Genesis 15 is the primary one. And you get to actually watch and see how this covenant-making ceremony takes place. And it might be described as grotesque to us, Uh, now years and years later. But the custom was to take a number of animals and to cut them in half, sever them, and then for the two parties making the agreement to walk in between the carcasses, effectively saying, if I don't hold my side of the deal down, let this happen to me. But something amazing happens with God and Abraham. A deep sleep uh, comes upon Abraham And while he's sleeping, the Lord himself passes in between the the animals. Effectively saying, I am making this covenant to you. This promise to you, I and only I will uphold it. That's one of the reasons Paul distinguishes between offspring and offsprings. Uh, It's called a collective singular. Paul knows. (laughs) He's quite smart. He knows that offsprings is not really a word. He's just making a point that it's not referring to a collective group of people. In this context, it's referring to an individual, a singular person, Uh, just like the word seed can refer to many descendants or a single descendant. Uh, Paul is saying that all of the promises of God to Abraham are fulfilled in one particular offspring, Christ He's the true descendant. He is the true king. It is through him that all the nations will be blessed. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to to God for his glory. The writers of the New Testament understood this. 
They saw Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment to all of God's promises, that God has upheld his covenant to Abraham through his seed or his offspring, the same seed that was promised to the woman in the garden in Genesis 3, verse 15. So how can we apply this to our lives? Uh, One brief point of application. Uh, It was true for the Galatian Christians and it's true for us. Trust the Lord for your salvation. Trust the Lord for your salvation. Rely on Him to keep His promises uh, because they are out of our hands. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, uh, but this is true when anyone makes you a promise, right? If someone promises something to you, you have no control over whether or not they actually fulfill that promise to you. You can hope that they will. Uh, You can make an educated guess based on perhaps their history or their character. Uh, They might have a good reputation, so you have a a higher degree of confidence that this person will meet their promise. But ultimately, it's something they have to do for you. It's out of your hands. Similarly, God keeps all of his promises, and that's outside of our control. That's outside of our hands. His character is perfect and always has been, and there's no better hands for your salvation to be in than His. So entrust your salvation to Him. Well, that's promise is primary. Let's move on to point two. Law is limited. Law is limited. This is verses 19 and 20. Uh, Paul just brings up the question, why the law? And perhaps uh, this question has popped up in your own mind as we've been going through the letter of Galatians. Uh, All this talk about uh, the importance of faith alone, all this talk about the promises uh, and how through the law comes death. Uh, Paul has basically said that the law does not change the promises made to Abraham. So what is the purpose of the law? And there are many ways to answer that question. Why does it even exist? What's the purpose of it? Uh, Well, it could be answered in a much longer form than what I'm going to give you today. Uh, But Paul gives just a few arguments here, and so I'm just going to highlight those and maybe expand on them a little bit. Paul's not bringing up this question to answer it exhaustively, so I would encourage you to look elsewhere in Scripture as well to learn even more, Uh, but simply to contribute to his argument that that the law is secondary to the promises made to Abraham. So one of the ways that he shows that is by uh, declaring that it came 430 years after, as he says. And then the two reasons he gives in verses 19 and 20, uh, first, is that the law was a temporary measure. It was something that was given only for a temporary amount of time. Paul says it was added because of our transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Uh, And he's speaking, of course, about Jesus. The the CSB, I think, translates this sentence in a way that uh, makes more sense to us. Uh, It says, until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. Uh, The promises that were made about Jesus, and so the law only matters until the time of his coming. After that point, the law's importance uh, 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 decreases. Now that Jesus has come, we're no longer required to obey it. But what does it mean that the law was given because of transgressions? Uh, Was it because there was 
sin that the law was uh, needed as a way to crack down on. Certainly it contains uh, instructions on uh, what to do to make yourself ceremonially clean. In that way it can be kind of like a roadmap for obedience. But that would go against the point that Paul's trying to make. His point is that the law does not contain any kind of comfort when it comes to our own righteousness. Some translations say it was to add to transgressions or to increase our transgressions or for the sake of transgressions. Uh, Earlier we listened to Romans 4 uh, in the middle of uh, the service in which Paul stated that the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. But he does not mean to say that there's no such thing as sin before the law came. Uh, That's not what he is saying. He clarifies in Romans 5.13 by saying, Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Meaning the law is what identifies and keeps a record of for sin. Uh, I recently listened to a discussion about just the criminal justice system in America. Uh, and I was fascinated by it. One of the, per, one of the people in the discussion uh, is an amazing attorney who has both prosecuted and been a defense lawyer uh, for over 25 years. And he said something that uh, I found made a lot of sense for this passage. What he said was, for someone to be considered legally guilty or to have legally transgressed the law, there must be a law exists uh, that restricts that thing. So... When lawmakers are getting together, legislators have to have in mind, what do we want to be crimes? And in order to punish someone for that crime, a law has to be written. That doesn't mean that if there's, a, that there's not a law, that it's not a wrong or it's not a sin. Now, similarly, in history, before the law came, sin existed in the world. But with the law coming, uh, sin is declared to be what it is, rebellion against God. It is highlighted now as a crime against the creator of the universe. But if there's no law to trespass over, then there's no crime. Uh, I think that's the sense in which Paul is speaking about the Mosaic law and how it adds to or increases our sin. In Romans 5.20, he says this, "Now Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In a way, the law makes the sin uh, officially recognized as such. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't sin before. Through the law, we recognize sin. We see that it is perhaps much greater than we thought. The law, therefore, points us to our need for forgiveness, points us to our need for a righteousness outside of ourselves because we can't produce it on our own. It shows us that we cannot ever possibly follow God's law perfectly. It increases our sin to show us we cannot attain salvation by our own works, but must instead rely on the perfection of another. That other is the promised offspring, promised to Abraham. It is the man, Christ Jesus, who by his death brings justification for all who trust in him. John Bunyan has an excellent image uh, for this relationship between the gospel and the law in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Christian, the main character, uh, is an allegory. Christian goes into Interpreter's house, 
And he is shown a room by interpreter. And this room is described as a dusty parlor, one that has never been cleaned. Uh, and interpreter calls a man to come and to clean the room by sweeping with a broom. And as he sweeps, all of the dust uh, is brought up into the air, and it's so dusty and dirty that Christian uh, nearly chokes. And seeing that sweeping does not do the trick, the room's not able to be cleaned that way, interpreter calls uh, a woman to come and sprinkle water in the room. And the water causes the dust to settle on the ground and then be cleaned easily. And Christian, when he asked the interpreter what it meant, interpreter said this, This parlor is the heart of a man that is never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law, but she that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. Now, whereas thou sawest that as soon as the first began to sweep, the dust did so fly about that the room could not by him be cleansed, but thou was almost choked there within. This is to show thee that the law, instead of cleansing the heart from sin, doth revive, put strength into, and increase it in the soul. Even as it doth discover and forbid it, for it doth not give power to subdue. Again, as thou sawest the damsel sprinkle the room with water, upon which it was cleansed with pleasure. This is to show thee that when the gospel comes in the sweet and gracious influences thereof to the heart, then I say, even as thou sawest the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is the sin vanquished and subdued, and the soul made clean through the faith of it, and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. The cleansing of the room through the gospel makes the room fit for the king of glory to inhabit it. Bunyan's image is insightful. The law makes our sin evident, but it is not able to remove that sin. Only the gospel can. Paul says we need the Paul says why we need the law is to point us to Christ. Because our transgressions show us our need of him. The law does the opposite of what the Judaizers say it does. Friends, our good deeds do not merit us grace from the Lord. They only show how sad and pathetic our efforts are. That's how we know that it was a temporary thing because of transgressions. So that's the first reason Paul says the law came as a, as a temporary measure to point us to Christ. The second thing Paul mentions is the fact that the law was put in place uh, through angels and an intermediary. Uh, as Paul is likely referring to Moses uh, and angels uh, on Mount Sinai, we read in Deuteronomy 32 that the Lord came from Sinai from 10,000 holy ones. It's also mentioned in Acts and Hebrews and Psalm 68, for example. And so Paul is using the presence of angels to connect the fact that the law was given secondarily through the mediation of lesser beings, that being angels and a man named Moses. He's saying that because the law was given through this secondary means, they are therefore inferior to the promise that was given directly by God himself to Abraham. And notice, 
He doesn't mean to say that the law is not from God altogether. That's, that's the point of what he says in verse 20. Uh, he's speaking about the intermediary, which is likely Moses, uh, and says that it implies more than one, but God is one. He's saying, I know it sounds like when I say the law came through these secondary means, uh, like they're from different sources, but they're not. They're from one source, that is God. God is still the author of the law. He gave it to Israel for a time, but it has passed through a few filters, if you will. It was given through the agency of these created beings. Uh, this is what it's important for us. Uh, just like God came to Abraham himself directly, God has come to us directly through the person of Jesus. Uh, the second person of the Trinity. He did not send another uh, mediator like Moses. He did not write another law for us. He himself took on flesh, came to us in the person of his Son. Notice the Trinitarian complexity of verse 20. Uh, Paul makes this reference to the Shema in Deuteronomy uh, 6. Uh, the universally agreed upon truth that God is one. And for Paul, this is not in conflict with Jesus being the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. For Jesus being God directly himself coming to fulfill them. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So if we put that together with Galatians 3.20, the only conclusion is that Jesus is the one God and that God himself is the mediator to men. Unlike the days of the law where there was an intermediary, in Christ, we have direct access to God himself. Like God said through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 34, I myself will be their shepherd. And then Jesus, when he came, declared himself to be the good shepherd. A few more points of application from these two verses for us. First, study the law. Uh, I'm doing uh, something that uh, maybe most people don't do. We've talked a lot about why you don't need the law and you shouldn't rely on the law, and that's true. However, I don't want you to make the mistake of then just assuming that there's no value to the law or only reading your New Testament. A Christian should study the law. It'd be a grave mistake to skip over uh, such a large portion of Scripture. Uh, God gave the law for our instruction and for our edification. It reveals to us his character and our need of him. The Christian should regularly be reminded of that. Remember that while obedience to the law is not required for salvation, it is still inspired by the Holy Spirit. Christians don't ignore the Old Testament because Jesus fulfilled it. We read it to understand the ways that Jesus fulfilled it even more. Remember that the blessed man in Psalm 1 is one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. So here are at least four reasons why you should know the law or study the law. These are subpoints. <laughs> to know God. To know God better. I promise you will know him better after studying the law. Uh, to remind yourself, secondly, of your need of grace to remind yourself of your need of grace. Some have referred to the law as a kind of on-ramp to faith because studying it naturally reveals your need for a Savior. Perhaps you're here this morning and you consider yourself to be a pretty good person, generally speaking. 
I'm sure it's not hard to find an example to point to of someone who is much worse than you. But read the law and see if your opinion stays the same. Read the law and reflect on it. Read through the book uh, of Exodus and see how you feel afterwards. Subpoint three, to remind yourself of the goodness of God's promises. To remind yourself of the goodness of God's promises. Uh, these promises of God are not made void because of the law. The law is given uh, to show us our need of the promises. The more we understand our own depravity, the more we'll appreciate the goodness and the kindness of our Savior. Subpoint four, to encourage obedience to a holy God. Psalm 19, 7 and 8 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Brothers and sisters, study the law. Second point of application, expect resistance to the gospel message. Uh, by and large, the world resists the idea of a lawgiver, and more and more it seems it rejects the idea of an objective right and wrong. So we can expect in our cultural context that people will not understand their need for a Savior. But this is all the more reason to preach God's judgment of sin and then to hold out God's grace as the answer to it, His mercy and His kindness. Our duty as Christians is to preach the gospel and pray for the Holy Spirit to change hearts. But don't grow weary in this task, brothers and sisters. Expect resistance to the gospel message. A third and final point of application. Preach grace to yourself and other church members. Preach grace to yourself and other church members regularly. Don't make the mistake of stubbornly trying to clean the dusty room yourself with a broom. Stop relying on your own efforts. Your own works of the law can never cleanse your sin. Instead, sprinkle the gospel over your life regularly. It's only by the grace of God that our sins are washed away. Only Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the antidote for our forgiveness. When applied, the sinner is cleansed to the fullest, such that even the Holy Spirit himself makes his home in your heart. Oh, dear friend, if... If you have never trusted in Christ, but you long to be assured of His righteousness, and you long to be in heaven, trust in Christ today. Consider turning away from your own self-reliance, seeking your own good pleasure, repent from your sins, and instead rely wholly on the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's the only thing that can cleanse you of your sin. The inheritance, friends, does not come through the law. If it did, it would not come by promise. But we know that the promise to Abraham, those promises are superior to the law because they preceded it 430 years, because the law was temporary to show us our sin and point us to Christ. It was implemented by secondary means like angels and Moses rather than God himself. Therefore, the law was never meant to change or to add to the promises given to Abraham. They were, they were given to point us to the way that God was going to fulfill those promises to Abraham, to increase our anticipation of that fulfillment. The law is not useless. It was important for a time, 
and is crucial for our understanding of the standards that Jesus has met on our behalf. It's useful for our instruction. Uh, Still handed down from God Himself, but to return to the law as if it were still binding after experiencing freedom from Christ is to make the promises of God null and void. It's to act as if, not only as if God never fulfilled the promises, but as if He never made them in the first place. So, brothers and sisters, the law is incredibly important. I don't want you to walk away thinking it's of no value at all. And it's recorded and preserved by the Holy Spirit for our instruction still. And yet, it is not the means by which we are saved. Its observance is not required for salvation. Though a small footnote uh, for you is that nine out of the ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Uh, So much of what we read in the Old Testament uh, is true about God and ourselves and still applies to our lives as Christians. But it is not a factor in whether or not you are saved. We're saved by grace through faith. Not faith in our works, not in our abilities, not our morality, but faith in Jesus. Faith in the offspring promised to Abraham, who has been made manifest to us. Calls all to turn away from their own efforts and to believe in him. The law was never for our salvation. For that we must believe in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word says, not long ago you have spoken to us by our fathers in many ways, but in these last days you have spoken to us in your Son. We thank you and give you praise that you gave up riches for rags, that your Son took on the weakness of flesh was tempted as we are, and yet was perfect in your eyes. We thank you that in obedience to your will, he himself went to the cross willingly as our substitute, as our ransom, and that by his death we are freed. Heavenly Father, we pray by your Spirit that you would help us to trust in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.